Well, good morning. It's great to be here one more time. When Rose gave me the schedule, I figured since um, this was my idea, I needed to be the pastor that stepped up the first week and, you know, did it. And then as I looked at the text, last week's text and this week's text, since I was organizing who got to teach once, I grabbed them. Because I think if you if you heard my passion last week about sanctification, uh, I wanted to teach on that. And this week, I just love the way your study lays out the titles. When Buster was here two weeks ago, it talked about four short and weighty verses. We talked about just what a great snapshot of the work of Christ in our life. And then last week was full-scale application. That's what sanctification is, the application of our justification to our lives. This morning, it's application that hits home, and that is an apt title for what we're going to look at. So take out your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, and we're going to be reading from verse 15 to four, chapter 4, verse 1. Let's stand for the reading of God's word, if you're able to stand up. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God for the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do... Work heartily as the, for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for his wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. You can be seated. Well, this morning we're going to look at sanctification some more. And the beginning question is, what does sanctification look like? Ultimately, sanctification looks like Jesus. Sanctification is our growth into Christ-likeness, okay? Now, remember the handout from last week that I gave you, and it's on the back today. And I talked about Wayne Grudem's chart. We're not going to go over that except to say that Justification is something that is entirely God's work, and sanctification is something we cooperate in. And then I talked about this chart. How do, how do we grow? I believe we grow as we are, take in, so to speak, the Bible and people. That's something that we have... Um, we make an effort to get those things into our life. And then overarching from the beginning to the end is God, and he uses the Holy Spirit in circumstances to bring those things about 
in in our life. Now, um, sancti- our sanctification is seen in our relationships. Turn quickly to 1 John 4.20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, and I believe there when it talks about brother, it's actually talking about the brethren in Christ, his spiritual family, then he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. And we talked a little bit last week about how our sanctification is seen in our relationships. That over and over again in the scriptures, it says that what our, how our, the health of our relationships tells us about what we truly understand about our saving relationship with Jesus Christ and the gospel. So we're here today, but we're here today and we're going to look first broadly at relationships in the church, but then we're going to look at some very specific relationships in this text. So my proposition is that it is God's will that you be sanctified. We talked about that last week. And it is God's will that you be sanctified, most particularly in your closest relationships. Not only that those closest relationships reflect your sanctification, but I believe that God wants to use those closest relationships to bring about greater sanctification in your life. Okay, so let's look first of all. First of all, it says that personal peace fosters relational peace. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to indeed which you were called in one body and be thankful. Verse 15. So what's the peace? Paul begins this letter as he does all of his letters. Grace and peace. Grace is God's unmerited work and favor in our life. And peace is the result of that grace. It's what our life looks like and how it is ordered when Jesus is the king. That's really what peace is. The, the, the benevolent rule of the good king in our life. Now ultimately, it's what God created us for. It's what Adam and Eve had in the garden until sin entered the picture. And ultimately that peace is going to be consummated in heaven. But right now we get tastes of that peace as God through his grace works in our life. So Paul says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now the and in verse 15, one of those connecting word, connects it to verse 14. And above all these, Put on love, okay? So the peace that God is talking about here is not simply personal peace, but the previous verse talks about relational love, seeking the best for one another. So the peace here that is being referred to is relational peace. Okay, that's part of God's peace. And it's the peace of Christ. It's the peace that only comes as he works in our lives and rules in our lives. And then it says, which indeed you were called in one body. There is a connection of personal peace to peace in the body of Christ. We are called personally 
to live with each other in a way that reflects Jesus Christ. This is very important, okay? Now, relational peace with each other begins with peace with God, okay? And part of that begins with peace with his sovereign will. His will is good, and he knows what's going on. And I think this is the first step, if we're going to have peace, especially with those closest with us, is that we need to understand that God is in control, and he is not ignorant of whatever conflict or strife we are facing. In James 4, 1 and 2, it says, What causes conflict among you? And it says, Your own selfish desires. Okay, and, and, and a good friend of mine who spoke into my life as, as I was experiencing some conflict in my life, and one of the questions he used to ask me is he said, Andy, you claim to have a high view of the sovereignty of God. I mean, I'm a Calvinist. That's what Calvinists claim to have. And he, also being a Calvinist, said, do you believe God knows what's going on in this situation? then why are you working so hard to get your way, okay? And um, so we need to have peace with his sovereign will. Now, Paul also here talks about how that peace comes about. Look at verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, okay? The word of Christ is both his words that he speaks and also words about Christ. And where are both of these found for us? They're found in the Bible. Ultimately, the whole Bible points to Jesus. Um, in, we looked at this last week, but in Colossians 3.10, in Ephesians 4, and Romans 12, it talks about how are we sanctified? Can anybody tell me? Put off what? The old man, the old person, put on what? And in the middle, renew your mind with the scriptures, okay? And one of the things I think we have to be aware of is that there is a strong connection between the Holy Spirit and the, our experience of the Holy Spirit's power in our lives and the Bible. Keep your finger in the Colossians passage, but turn to Ephesians 5. Ephesians 5, beginning with verse 18. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. It's just saying, don't be controlled by wine, but be filled, by, filled with the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled with the Holy Spirit? If we look at the illustration that Paul's using there, it means be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And this this phrase that Paul means, it's something that is ultimately passive. We allow God to do it. We, we get rid of things that are keeping us from being controlled by him. It is also a repeatable action. It happens over and over and over. Every day you should pray, Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. And um, it is a command here. It's not an option. So he says, Be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father. Okay. Now turn to our Colossians passage. Look at what it says beginning in verse 16. Let the word of Christ 
dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See the similarity between those two passages? One talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit with a set of results, and the other talks about letting the Word of of God dwell in you richly with the very same set of behaviors. Paul saw how those two things are linked together. Okay? So the Word... And the Bible, if you want to experience the power of the Holy Spirit in your life, you need to be in God's Word, okay? And we see this connection in this passage in Ephesians. In 2 Timothy 3, it says that all Scripture is God-breathed, okay? And and, uh, God-breathed indicates the Holy Spirit is involved in there. In Hebrews 4, 12, and 13, it says the Word of God is living and active, Okay, in 2 Peter 1.21, it says the writers of Scripture were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Okay, so there's this link, okay, and we shouldn't separate them. Too often I hear people that try to make some sort of false dichotomy or some sort of competition, you know, like, oh, those people, they're just interested in the Word and they don't care about the Holy Spirit or, or vice versa. No, they are linked, okay? And if we want to be sanctified, we need to be in God's Word. And then it says we are to teach and admonish another one another in all wisdom. This is mutual sanctification. Life in the word together. Now that's what's so great about this study here. There's four ways I believe we take in God's word. I began a a blog series and Drew keeps telling me, would you please finish it? Because I only did the introduction about the power of God's word. But four ways basically we take in God's word there in scripture. One is preaching. Very, very important, the proclamation of God's word. Number two is teaching, the explanation of God's word. And and preachers teach and some teachers preach a little. The third is taking in God's word, the one another focus, the small group focus. And that is often where you come up with the application of God's word as you admonish one another. And then the fourth way is your personal meditation, pondering, study of the word. And so that's what's great about this study. You have teaching. You have the one another part in your small groups. And you have the personal study in your book that you prepare. So, so, so just keep doing that because it's a key part of our sanctification and it's something that we do together, okay? It says we're supposed to do these things with thankfulness. Again, gratitude goes a long way in this area of our personal relationships. You see, if we're grateful for the relationships we have, and we're thankful we don't always expect the worst and put the worst spin on what the other person is doing. We become content. And then finally it says that our relationships are for the glory of God. Um, Here it says, get back to Colossians. It says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord. 
okay, giving thanks to God the Father through him. So we want to do these all for the glory of God. Okay, now we move on. Where the rubber meets the road, okay? Now we're getting into specific relationships here in 3.18 through 4.1. And if you notice here, I have each section, and I have it titled Grace, Grace for wives, grace for husbands, grace for children, grace for parents, grace for employers, grace, grace for employees, grace for employers. Why? Because here God is saying, I'm not leaving you in the dark to figure out how to work these relationships out. I'm going to give you some direction because I am a gracious, merciful God who just doesn't want you to be stuck in all of the things that sin brings to relationships. So let's start with grace for wives, okay? I'm not going to spend a lot of time on these this morning. You can discuss this stuff together. You'll do a much better job than I will. But it says here for wives, wives submit to your husbands. Now that word, it's not something we like to hear. Part of the fall is we... Not just women, men, children, we all rebel against order. And I want to say here that submit doesn't mean that you have to let your husband make every single decision in the marriage if you're married. If I made every single decision in our marriage, we would be in trouble. But what it means is that you willingly place or arrange yourself tucked under your husband's protection and leadership. And it says here that that is fitting in the Lord, that it is God's design, and also that you are supposed to submit to your husband in ways that do not contradict God's commands. You are, ne you are never asked to do something sinful if your husband asks you to do that, and I hope he doesn't. I, I, what I would say is, let your husband lead spiritually. And especially for some of your younger, you younger women, um, it takes us guys some time to grow into that role. So be patient with him. Um, you know, he's not going to have it all together. Uh, some of you older women would say, and he's never going to get it all together, but uh, and neither are you. So, but 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 there, you know, that's that's the bottom line there. Second, grace for husbands. Now, don't go home and start waving this in his face, but but just understand this is what he is required to do. This is what I am required to do: love my wife and do not be harsh with her. Okay. Now turn to Ephesians chapter 5 again, because again, Paul's really using the same flow of thought here. He goes from the sanctification of putting off, renewing your mind, and putting on, and then he talks about being filled with the Holy Spirit and what that looks like in relationships. And then he moves into this part of sanctification, and he uses some more words and gives a fuller explanation. But in verse 33, there is a summary statement of the teaching here in Ephesians and in Colossians, and it says this, However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, 
and let the wife see that she respects her husband. I love this summary. You see, right in that summary, we have the solution for the curse of the fall. What happened when sin entered the picture in the first marriage? Turn to Galatians 3.16. Galatians, Genesis, sorry, G words. That that wouldn't have worked. Okay, Genesis 3.16. The second part of the verse. This is the curse of the fall in marriage, okay? The curse of the fall is this. It says, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Now, what does that mean? And your desire shall be for your husband. That word desire there is only used in one other place in the Old Testament. And it is used in Genesis chapter 4, the Cain and Abel story. Look at 4 verse 7. And it says this. If you do well, you will not... Will you not be, the Lord's talking to Cain, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So the desire here is, sin's desire is to rule over Cain, it's saying. So going back to the passage about marriage, when it says the husband's desire, the wife's desire will be for her husband, what it's saying is she will desire his place in the order. Okay, That's the curse of the fall. God has given us this good order. Men and women created equally the image of God, given specific things about the male and female gender. We are different, okay? And, and, and we complement each other in our roles, and both of them are valuable in God's economy. And the curse of the fall is that the, the wife is going to want the husband's role, and then it says, and he will rule over her, and what it really says he will rule over her harshly. Okay, so we jump to Colossians and we really see God's prescription to this curse. And that is husbands, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Wives, respect your husband. Don't, don't, don't try to take his place. And these are rooted in the gospel. I think it's very interesting because this teaching in this direct form, you can't find it in the Old Testament. It didn't make sense, this prescription, until the gospel came in fullness with Jesus Christ. We are the, that's why it's such a wonderful, grace-filled thing. Okay, now you're going to talk more about what this looks like in your small groups, but I would say this. If you want more help, what does this look like? One book I would really suggest is Love and Respect by Emerson Egeriches, okay? I don't know of any book that unpacks 
practically what it looks like for husbands to love their wives and wives to respect their husbands in such practical ways as as this book does. All of the pastors here use it regularly with people for marital counseling. We will probably do the Love and Respect video conference here at some time in the future. I'd encourage you to attend if you haven't. If you have attended it, I would encourage you to attend it again. I've been through it two or three times already, and every time God uses it in my life. And women, tell your wives. When The first time we did it here, my wife was walking through the halls and she was asking different couples if they were going, and the general answer from the men in our church was, I have been to so many marriage conferences and I'm tired of getting beat up on all the time. They will not feel that way after they go to this conference. It's something that Emerson Egerich's addresses in that he feels that our culture has confused men and they don't know how to be. So if we offer it or you want to read, you know, you and your husband read the book together, I highly recommend it. Okay, then two other books if you want to dig in here more. This is what some of us, well, many of us who who are pastors uh, and church leaders, we, found, we fondly call this the big blue book. Of course, I looked on Amazon, it isn't blue anymore. But if you want a book that is going to go through in a serious way and address every passage in the Bible that addresses biblical manhood and womanhood, it's a collection by a variety of author, authors, this is, this is the book for you. You don't have to read it from cover to cover, but somebody, you wonder, well, what about that passage in 1 Corinthians that talks about head coverings? You can find it in here. The pa- th- this is a, a, a great reference book to have on your shelf. Then the final one, which, which I just was uh, made aware of recently and have not read it, but comes highly recommended by people I respect, Housewife Theologian, How the Gospel Interrupts the Ordinary by Amy Bird. This is a woman who is saying women need to think about theology. They need to study the scriptures, the things we value here. And I heard an interview with her. It was great. Okay, let's move real fast here. Grace for children. Obey parents. Okay, yes, it's good for you to tell your children to obey you. Okay, Grace, and it says here fathers, because I think we as fathers particularly can be harsh with our children and exasperate them. But grace for parents, I know mothers, you have problems at time with this too, is do not provoke your children. Do not frustrate them. I heard a great illustration from a friend of mine a number of years ago, and uh, he was doing. He was in a church and he was teaching on conflict and he was talking about in the church it's very important that the leaders take the lead in sorting out conflict. And he told this very poignant story. His daughter, who was in middle school, had sinned. She had clearly done something wrong and he addressed the sin issue. Unfortunately, he addressed the sin issue in a way that was not loving and kind. It was harsh, and therefore he sinned, and he violated this commandment. And what clicked on him at that moment was that didn't excuse his daughter's sin, 
But he realized at that point that as the more mature of the two believers, hopefully you're more mature in your faith than your children, that he had now blown it, and it was more important that he deal with his sin with his daughter and walk her through his sin than it was for him to deal with her sin at that moment. And that's where I think this verse, that's how we provoke and we frustrate and we exasperate our children. When we're constantly telling them how they need to obey us, and yet they're not seeing us deal with our sin, especially when it's sin against them. Okay. Grace for employees, obey in everything. You are serving the Lord Christ. Grace for employers, treat your employees justly and fairly. Okay? Now, I want to just before we I, we look at these conclusion questions, I want to say something here. What we've talked about here, especially about what I call biblical manhood and womanhood, it's what we as the leadership here at East Cooper Baptist Church, it's what we believe, what we teach. It's under attack from many evangelicals today. We're not just talking about the mainline churches who have said the scriptures aren't authoritative, okay? It's under attack. I mean, you know, some of you are going to love this when I say this. If you go to a church in the north, it's a whole different world out there, okay? And I've been in churches where the leadership said, said that we believe in biblical manhood and womanhood. You're the senior pastor. We want you to teach it. Oh, but don't offend any of the women in our church who don't hold that view, Okay? The terms we use here are complementarianism, that's biblical manhood and womanhood, that God has created men and women equal in worth, but with different roles in the home and in the church. We've talked about the roles in the home here at East Cooper. We would say in the church, that means that um, the role of pastor slash elder is um, only limited to men, okay? And um, But we believe here that women can teach the scripture with authority to women. We want you to do that. We want you to be serious about the Bible. You know, we're not saying the men get to do all the important stuff and the women simply have to, um, have, to have, have tea or something like that. So, so our view is what we call complementarianism. The other view is self-defined they call it egalitarianism now when i went to seminary they had already staked that claim we're egalitarian you know that sounds really nice and the word that they would use for what we would say is biblical manhood and womanhood or complementarianism was either traditionalism or hierarchicalism i can barely say it that was really an unfair labeling so i'm glad that the men who wrote that book came up with complementarianism but it's important for you as women. You see, I said it's a different world in the North. But I also learned when I came down here that many of the people in the South, many of the Christians, they accept the complementarian view simply because it's the traditional view. And we're more traditional here. 
And what I'm telling you is the world is changing. Everything I read says in, in, in 10 years from now, um, the churches in the South are going to be much more, if not just like the evangelical churches in the North. If your children go off to college and they get involved in certain campus ministry groups, they are some of those groups. I was deeply impacted by InterVarsity. InterVarsity will not teach the complementarian view in their campus fellowships as, as part of their official thing. Their InterVarsity Press, their publisher, will not publish books that put forth the complementarian view. They'll, they'll publish books like Four Views on, on, on Gender or something, but they will not publish a book that robustly puts forth the, the, what we would say here is biblical manhood and womanhood. We saw this a couple years ago on one of our campus outreach summer projects. They were all doing it down there doing summer projects. Somehow I got elected to take this phone call. I pick it up. It's a father. His daughter's on campus outreach summer project. This man, I, I think he was a believer. He was incensed. My daughter's on this trip and they're teaching that women should be subservient to men. And I can't believe it. We would never teach that in my church. And again, he's an evangelical believer from the South, and he was astounded that anybody held a traditional view of biblical manhood and womanhood. So, you need to know not you need to know some basic things as so that you can uh, teach your daughters. If you have daughters, teach your sons these things. And what are they? V very quickly, okay? The first of all, that at the end of the day, it's an issue of what we call hermeneutics. Uh, Jonathan Chapman, Leland Brown, and Danny Beach and I, as soon as I finish here, we're leaving to go to Orlando. We're going to spend the next three days in a workshop, not a conference where we sit and take in all sorts of good teaching, but a workshop where a lot of the time is sitting around tables and we are going to work on how to get better at understanding the flow of thought of the original authors, the human authors of Scripture, and what it says and what they meant when they wrote it so that we can all get better at teaching what God, the divine author, wants people to hear. That's called hermeneutics, okay? How do we interpret the Scriptures? I want to tell you here, you can understand your English Bible. Okay, I think that's one of the things in this argument. People start acting like you can't understand your Bible, and when you read this verse and it says, Wives, submit to your husbands as it is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and not, do, do not be harsh with them. People are saying, it doesn't mean what it says. I believe it means what it says. And what you will find out is this issue of how do you interpret the Bible? Um... As, evangel as, as, fe as feminism, not in the evangelical world, but in the mainline churches in the 60s and 70s took root, and, and then the evangelicals by the 80s, many of them were following them and pushing for the fact that there's no gender distinction in the Bible, and the hermeneutics, the way they, the, the way they went about interpreting Scripture to get there, it's the, in most cases, not all, I want to be fair, but in most cases, it's the exact same hermeneutical method that is used to defend homosexuality from the Bible. 
And it's the idea that um, it's, first of all, the issue of authority. Does the Bible mean what it says? And they will say, no, it was just cultural. Okay, every passage about biblical manhood and womanhood in the New Testament in some way ties what is said there with gender roles and differences into either the created order, how God made us to be, or Christ in the church. It's not just cultural. It's not just addressing a cultural situation. Then they will say, well, you know, I mean, sometimes it's this ridiculous. Well, you know, we don't have to take this seriously because we all know Paul was a misogynist. (laughs) Says who? Well, you laugh, but that's the argument out there. Okay? So it's an issue of authority, the authority of Scripture. And in the Episcopal Church, and many of the churches in our area that have left the Episcopal Church on the issue of homosexuality, what they're saying is the reason this is so important is it's a issue of biblical authority. Okay? Now, the American Episcopal Church, compared to many uh, Anglican churches in the rest of the world, did not see biblical manhood and womanhood as an issue of biblical authority in their churches 20 or 30 years ago. And they moved over to the the complementarian, the egalitarian side, and now they're sort of caught because people are using that same interpretation of Scripture to defend homosexuality. Okay? Don't give in to what I would call commentary wars or expert book wars. You can always find either a biblical commentary on these passages or a book to defend, I would say, if, you don't, if, if you're looking for somebody, a Christian, to, to debunk biblical manhood and womanhood, there's plenty of books out there you can read. And they'll sound very convincing, and they'll argue from the Greek and the Hebrew and the grammar and everything else. And once again, I believe you can trust your English Bibles. Here's an example. Okay. In Ephesians, it says the husband is the head of the wife. Well, this is a very common argument, okay? It says the common argument, and you read this in a lot of books which are trying to say that there is no gender distinction in the Bible. The roles in the home, the roles in the church, are you know they're interchangeable. That um, head doesn't mean head. When it says... The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Now, to me right there, again, plain English, well, how is Christ the head of the church? Now, I'm not the head of my wife like Christ is the head of church in one sense, okay? But the idea of the order there is very clear. How can I say, well, the husband isn't, isn't the head of the home if it's saying it's supposed to reflect Christ in the church? But they say, no, it, the head doesn't mean head. Head means source. Well, where do they get that from? Well, what they do is they take a big, thick book, a, a book about the Greek language called a lexicon, which is sort of like an, a, a dictionary. And if you were to get an English dictionary and you were to look up the word head, you may see, depending on how thick the dictionary was, 5, 10, 15, 20 different meanings for the word head. Now, the first meaning would be the most obvious. It's this thing I have here on, to, on the top of my body, okay? 
Well, if you go down far enough in the list, I don't know, it would be 5, 6, 7, 8, 11, 12, you would see this definition of head. Head, a toilet on a boat, okay? So what they've done is they've taken that Greek lexicon and the number one meaning of head, they have um, went down to like, meaning six, seven, eight, ten, and it says head equals source, disregarding everything that went ahead of it. And we're not even sure, Greek scholars, of which I am not, but, but, but men smarter than I aren't even sure that that word was even used in that way as head equals source during the first century, during the times the Bible was written. Now, why am I getting all this technical stuff? Because I'm telling you that our world is changing. And you don't need to know every jot and tittle about this argument. But you cannot just say, well, it's what we teach and it's traditional because increasingly your children, your grandchildren, your friends, they're going to hear other people um, argue in a good sense. What I mean by that is contest in a good sense for their view of scriptures very articulately. So, uh, you need to know about biblical manhood and womanhood. Now again, if you really wanted to get to some of these things I talked about, this is the book for you. It's listed on there. But again, you can look up passage by passage, but, but this is something that is being contested. And here at East Cooper, we as pastors, Buster is the senior pastor, we believe this is important. Okay, I went on there. Conclusion. What do your relationships with your family, church family, biological family, what do they say about your sanctification? What does your sanctification have to do with your relationships? And then here's the exciting thing. You know, my relationships aren't perfect. Far from it. Relationships with my wife, relationships with my adult children, relationships with people I work with. But I know if I continue to grow in sanctification, it's going to have a positive effect on those relationships. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for the fact, and we see this so tangibly today, this curse of the fall in marriage, and we see a, a, an exact prescription of how to reverse that curse in our passage, and it's related to the way you have worked in our lives and ordered things. Lord, help us to grow in our sanctification. Lord, I pray that those who are closest to each person in this room would say that God is doing a new thing in our lives. Thank you, Lord. We just pray, Lord Jesus, fill us with your Holy Spirit. Remind us of what you have done in our lives, the ground of who we are in you, your, your wondrous death and resurrection. And may that not simply be a legal position in our lives, but may it be an ever-growing reality of the way we live our lives. We pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen. Thank you.